The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. We are richly blessed, and I am uh, I'm really excited about what I get to share with you today. And I, I have a guess that for some of us, it can be um, a message that can really free us. I had um, what I rarely have. I had this deep conflict today when I got up to get dressed. And it would be hard for you to understand, but um, I have two competing superstitions. So one is we had a service yesterday and we had an amazing Texans watch party. We had a great turnout on the west side and it was a lot of fun. And as you might imagine, anybody want to take a guess as to why I wore this shirt yesterday during the game? Because it's the shirt I was wearing the week before when we won our first playoff game, right? Anybody else wear the same thing yesterday that you did the week before to make sure that we, we won, right? And, um, and then I have this other competing thing where if I wear it, usually after a loss, then it gets retired for a while. But I also have a competing superstition that if the sermon went well on Saturday night, it's what I wear on Sunday also. <laughs> so I woke up and which, which superstition trumps the other? But then I realized it's actually a perfect way to explain some of my sermon. Um, and maybe you, anybody else like for an Astros game, like I have more Astros jerseys because when they lose in the playoffs, I have to retire that jersey for a while and bring something else back. And there's really nothing, I, we live in this like scientific revolution. I don't actually believe that Jose Altuve got distracted by my jersey and that we lost. And yet I'm gonna do it forever, right? Like, <laughs> like there's something deeply ingrained in me that says like, mix it up. You got to mix it up. Something needs to change, right? And something needs to happen. And we were watching, I was watching a basketball game yesterday and this basketball player wears, wears the same socks for every game. And I'm thinking like, they're going to get worn out. You're going to have to come up with a new plan, but it's ingrained in us. We even can build amazing buildings in downtown Houston that tower into the sky and you get on the elevator and all of a sudden you realize like it goes from the 12th to the 14th floor. Like, we don't do a 13th floor because it's spooky, right? Like it doesn't mean, like educated engineers built that building, but they're like, no 13, we're not doing a 13th floor. Like that would mess up the whole thing. So imagine we live in this world where in our, with our phones, we can explain almost anything. I mean, it, does it not boggle your mind that, that like 10 days before this cold front hit, they were already telling us to wrap our plants and get ready for the cold front, right? Sean and I are in a series where we're called Hearing the Voice. And if you can't tell, we're both pretty fired up about it because we, we love teaching you the Bible and we really think that it's transformative. And we've realized that if you understand the Bible a little bit better, that it, it can be really productive for all of us. And so one of the things you need to know is that the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, was written to an ancient world that was truly superstitious for a reason not just because they wanted the Astros to win or the Texans to win another playoff game, but because no one understood what was happening in the world. If it rained just enough or there wasn't enough rain or if a storm blew in, nobody knew why. Can you imagine living in a world where all of a sudden there's an earthquake and you think you angered the gods? It's the only way you have to understand it. The whole world understood it that way. It's hard for us to, even for me to think about living in 1900 in Galveston. Do you realize in 1900 in Galveston when that hurricane blew in, they had no idea the hurricane was coming. 
Some dude looked up and was like, looks like a pretty nasty storm. And then a, a week later, a thousand people are dead. They, we, we have at least some warning before these things happen. And we understand why they happen. And for some of us, we're like, yeah, we're kind of complicit in the whole global warming thing. And the Gulf of Mexico keeps getting warmer. There's this deep understanding. In the ancient world, they were constantly living this place of, how do we please the gods? What do we do to please the gods? And there was a sun god and there was a harvest god and there were many gods and you needed to find a way to keep the gods happy with you. And so nobody ever knew where they stood with the gods. They, they were constantly trying to, to measure up and to do enough. And along to that story, this is what you need to know. In that ancient world where everybody felt like it was just chaos. And literally, you, you think about it, some years, finally you get a really good crop. Everything's going right. So you think, well, okay, whatever we did last year. Well, whatever we did last year, do more, because it could be even better if we'd have done more, right? It never ends. In that story, all of a sudden, to a nobody named Abraham, God presents a new alternative. There's actually one God. And this God is offering and inviting something totally different. And this God makes a promise to a nobody like Abraham, right? And, and this is what you need to know. Abraham, had no, there was nothing special about him, nothing. In fact, most of the Bible where it lists all these genealogies and it's just person after person. In ancient literature, when you list genealogies, it was to be a show-off. I came from this family and this family and this Pharaoh. And on. In the Bible, it's just a bunch of nobodies, which is a way to say to everybody, like, God loves everyone. It doesn't matter if you're a nobody. So Abraham gets this promise, and this is what the promise is. This is a unique sermon because I only have two points. I only have two points because I want you to really grasp the two points. And the first one is Abraham becomes a nobody to a somebody because God made a promise for land, a massive tribe, and this thing nobody had ever thought, of, thought before, what we're calling a universal blessing. He said to Abraham, I'm going to give you all this amazing land. And I'm going to give you the biggest family, the biggest tribe, the biggest nation ever from your family. And you're going to be blessed, which would be common. The gods would say, I want the gods to bless my people. But this God said, I'm going to bless you because I love everyone. And then you're going to be a blessing to everyone, every other tribe and all other people. No one had ever thought like this before or imagined that a God could be that way. Walter Brueggemann writes about what we're now calling this covenant, right? And a covenant is a deal. So one person says, I'll do this. Another says, I'll do this. Then we make a deal, a covenant. It, but for God, it was a promise. Sean told you last week, and you'll understand by the end of the sermon why, that God was making a covenant, a promise to himself, more than a, a promise to us. And this promise was so unique. Walter Brueggemann, the Old Testament theologian and scholar, says it this way. He describes the covenant. He said, the God of covenant is a God of hospitality who welcomes into the community and into the political economy those who are inconvenient. Think about even today, those that are inconvenient. This wasn't supposed to be in the sermon, but just a side note. I, I had a moment of joy for being your pastor. I called a random member of our church at a moment that I was in the middle of doing something and they were doing the same thing. They were going by to check on an unhoused friend after the freeze. 
knowing that the warming centers were closing and that they would be going back to the place that they were before and seeing that they did go to the warming station. This is the kind of faith, Ecclesia, that says, you're actually not an inconvenience, you're a part of the community, right? And I love the fact that there are many of you that you, you get this. And so in that, it, it welcomes those who are inconvenient. This is the God who executes justice for the orphan and the widow and who loves the strangers, providing them food and clothing. Imagine God making provision for food and clothing for those outside the tribe. What you need to hear is nobody had ever thought of this. The idea was for your tribe and your people. And if you listen to the political rhetoric today, it's much of the same. This is about us, what matters to us. We're what's important. But God said, I'm going to make a promise. I'm going to bless you, but you're going to then bless all other people. In fact, so much so it says that that provision, moreover, is said to be an execution of justice so that the needs of the orphan, the widow, and the immigrant are not just charity, but a right. Now hear that. That's a radically different thing than we're just doing something nice. It's actually the right thing. It's the just thing to do. So what you need to hear in all this ecclesia is that God made a promise, and this promise that we hear in the Bible, and it's the common thread from the beginning of the scripture to today, that, that promise, it goes all the way through it, and it's totally revolutionary and different than anything anybody had ever assumed before, which is the second point. You've never seen me to get to the last point this fast. There's never been a covenant like this one. No one's ever made a promise like this promise. You see, because in the ancient world, if you didn't know where you stood with the gods, track back with me and just imagine. You make sacrifices and you, you hope that the crops are right and the weather's good and there's no earthquakes and there's no natural disasters, but you're always wondering if I'd just sacrifice more, right? And in the ancient world, ultimately, it led to the logical conclusion, which was the only way to really please to gods is to sacrifice the most important blessing that you have. Everybody knows what that is, right? It becomes the most awkward sermon I ever heard ever as a kid. You sacrifice your own child. Any, anybody remember sitting in church and hearing a sermon about Abraham sacrificing Isaac? And the theme of the sermon was basically like, Abraham loved God so much that he was willing to kill his kid, right? And I remember sitting there like, Dad, do you love God that much? <laughs> like, like, this is the worst sermon I've ever heard. This doesn't sound like good news. But what you need to know, Ecclesia, if you read the Bible well, I'm going to invite you to do it today, there's a much bigger story unfolding. There was no place, and it's a bad sermon. The point was of the sermon, and you're going to hear it, is that God doesn't want you to sacrifice your kid. God doesn't, and in fact, he makes clear you're never to do it. And this is what you need to know. Abraham already knew the kind of God, and I think Abraham was in on the story. Abraham knew this is a different kind of God. This God loves everybody. And so to a world that thought the logical conclusion always to please the gods is to ultimately sacrifice your child, a story had to be written in the Bible to explain clearly. So in Genesis 22, right, we, we get this story where it says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son. Now remember, Abraham had waited a long time 
When you're 90 years old and you don't have a son, you're giving up hope. God gave him Ishmael. Long story, we'll get to it. Then Isaac. And said, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. And early the next morning, Abraham got up and he loaded his donkey and he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then, he says, and then, say it again, and then we will come back to you, right? Now, Abraham's either lying or he's tipping his hat. I think he's tipping his hat. I think he knew. He knew this is not the kind of God that will require, I will, I will go through the motion and I want it to be clear. And ultimately, it became a part of the story to make clear to us what was important. And remember the story, this is what was awkward when you were a kid and you heard the sermon, right? Because then they start marching up the mountain, just Abraham and Isaac, right? And Isaac asked the ultimate question. You remember? What's he say? Hey, where's the sacrifice, right? Like, hey, uh, we didn't bring a lamb, Dad. Is this about to be the worst day ever for me or what? Like, what? And I remember being a kid just like, this story sucks. Like, this is awful. What is going on here, right? And, and ultimately, what did he tell him? You remember? He said, God will provide. And you don't know if it's a non-answer or what, but he gets there. And he demonstrates his willingness, but ultimately I think knows, like God is going to say, this is not what I want from you. This is not what the one true God will ever require. And later in Leviticus it explains more clearly, this is never what I want. And then what happens is unbelievable, right? He finds what? A ram in the bush. And the ram becomes the sacrifice, so what happens in the story? God bring, God offers the sacrifice and the promise. He delivers on both ends of the deal. And this is the story, Ecclesia, of the Bible over and over again. God always delivers on both ends of the deal. How much did Abraham bring to the sacrifice? Nothing. How much do you bring in Christ? Nothing. But the truth is for all of us, and I, I put myself at the front of the line, we tend to want to feel like we did something. So we try to quantify Christianity with some kind of performance grid, and it's changed. It's different than it was when I was a kid. We checked things on an envelope when we went to Sunday school. We read our Bible. We prayed. We brought somebody. We witnessed to somebody. There was kind of a secret checklist on the back that was like, I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. I didn't like. But the idea was we kind of earned it with what we did. And the checklist may be different, but most of us still feel like, I, I need to feel like I did something. And this is the thing to true Christianity. It's the thread through the whole Bible. It's not about you. God is making a promise to God's self. And God is saying, whether you do the right or the wrong thing, I'm going to love you and bless you anyway. It's the kind of God that I am. And he says to Abraham, you don't have to, you don't have to offer your son. You don't have to offer anything. I will be for you what you desperately need, right? Now, you got to hear that for a, for a whole world that thought they never understood where do we stand with the gods, this was the best news ever. In fact, some of the, the most challenging passages in the Bible, I would tell you, are, 
are based on, they're challenging for us because we don't understand that worldview. For most of you, what do you say the hardest book in the Old Testament to read is? Leviticus, in every service, people, Leviticus, right? This is what you need to know in Leviticus. Leviticus is there so that superstitious people that didn't know where they felt they, they stood with God could know that they were okay with God. God said, let me, let me give you something you can do. You can do these sacrifices, which by the way, most of those sacrifices, you could also call a barbecue. He said, will you burn meat and then eat it with God? This is my favorite thing to do ever burn meat and eat it with God. If you will then, in Leviticus, you could burn meat and eat it with God, and then you knew you and God were okay. And if you know you're okay with God, you're like, the rest of the world's okay. You're not worried about the next earthquake or that God's out to get you. You know God and I are okay. And in Leviticus, there's, there's a sacrifice that you can do if you, if you fail to love your neighbor. There's a sacrifice for if you tell a lie. There's a sacrifice for you, you fail these different things. And then you can be like, hey, God, I prayed and I offered and we share a meal and we're okay. And the second half of Leviticus, by the way, is doing much the same thing. It's really practical. It, it, you know, we still do this a little bit, right? Where you get the worst parking spot and you think like God's out to get me. Like I, or you get the best and like God loves me so much, right? And in the ancient world, if you got sick, you were like, I'm, I'm sick because God's mad at me, right? And in the second half of Leviticus, Leviticus is just like, you're sick because you don't wash your hands. Like you need to wash your hands, and if you wash your hands a lot, you won't get sick. And you're sick because your toilet's only one foot deep and you need to dig it deeper, like 10, 12 feet would be really good because it's getting in your water and that's why you're sick. And be like, oh, wow. And all of a sudden, this world that was so dangerous and superstitious, it started to make sense. And people realized they knew where they stood with God. Now, Ecclesia, you need to hear, this is really good news. You know you can know if you don't where you stand with God. And this is the thing. God loves you regardless of what you do. The problem for me, and my guess is for a lot of us, is that for a lot of time, the performance thing kind of works. If you're a pretty good performer, you're like, I'm kind of crushing it as a Christian, really. I'm feeling pretty good. I've done the things. And so I feel like, hey, I, I kind of like the feeling of I did something and God's doing something for me. But the truth is, if you've lived long enough, and if you haven't, you will, it won't always go that way for you. So instead of having a few more points, I wanted to share the end of the sermon just in an invitation with you for the places where in my life, my performance was subpar in a way that left me, I don't think I was ever ready to give up my faith, but I will tell you, being a professional Christian is harder than being a Christian. And for me, there have been at least two seasons in my life since I started Ecclesia, 25 years ago, by the way, I still am sitting here and like, I can't believe it's our 25th year. But there have been two seasons in that journey that I thought, I can't do this anymore. One was um, 
in the season that we were working to move into this building. So for those of you that were around, we were over at Taft Street and we knew we couldn't stay at Taft Street forever. We had 17 parking spots. We were doing five services that didn't work, but we needed to buy something. And this was the coolest building we'd ever found. And it was, we found a way to get the money together. But the thing we didn't really do is like, we had to renovate it. And I don't know if you know, but the code enforcement office for the city is like right next door to our place which means everything we do is just like more expensive than it could be if you were a little more creative. Um, it just is like part, and we got in and like everything was harder. Everything was more expensive. Asbestos abatement was more expensive. And I kept going back to people at Taft and be like, we're gonna move in in like three months. And you're like, you said that nine months ago. And I'd be like, yeah, but for real, we're gonna do it this time. And then we'd have new obstacles and I'd come back and just be like, this, this is not good. And in the middle of all that, my grandfather, who was really a mentor to me, he was a longtime pastor in Houston. He had cancer and he was dying of cancer. And there was a particular week where he got really sick and we got news from the city that if we wanted to do the things we were gonna do, we would have to pay for these massive electrical upgrades to come in. So it was like almost a six figure amount just to make the power work and I'm on the city end, and I knew like to get up and preach like, who wants to make the electricity work? We need $100,000. Everybody's gonna be like, you're a loser. Like, stop, we can't do this. It's just, I just thought this is awful. And, um, and that week my grandfather died. And I got the phone call and I was the closest one to the hospital. My grandmother was with him and I went to pick her up and I saw his body and I took her home and I spent time with her and I prayed with her and we laughed and we cried. And then she started to make some phone calls to her sister and family and I took time just to sit in his office and you do what you would do. I tried to see what was he reading last and what books were open and what passage was his Bible open to. And we'd been working on this place so long that I'd forgotten that in my grandfather's office he always had this photo. I'd kind of ignored it, but it's a photo of the downtown skyline of the city of Houston. And if you've been around long and you've been to an open door, you've heard me tell parts of the story. But I realized when I looked up and I was looking through his stuff that, you know what, I bet I can see our building in this photo. And if you go in a little closer, that's where we sit right now. That's 1100 Elder Street. And I had to get a magnifying glass and you can barely read it the way it's whited out. But at the very top corner, which would have been the top corner of that side of our building, on it, you can see that our building used to be the Phillips Paper Company. And I thought that was fascinating because I've been searching for it on the internet, trying to figure out what it was. And I, I went to my grandmother when she got off the phone and said, hey, I found this photo. And with the magnifying glass, I can see it used to be the Phillips Paper Company. And I was wanting to get my grandfather over here and I never did. And she said, what, Chris? And it's, it used to be the Phillips Paper Company. And she said, you don't remember, but your grandfather's last job before he became a pastor was as a salesman for the Phillips Paper Company. He used to work in this building, and now I get to preach here. And you couldn't convince me in a million years that that's a coincidence. I know in my core, like, I was supposed to do this right here in this room and get to preach here. And God had a story for me that goes back that far and maybe even farther. And I knew in that moment that it wasn't based on my performance. 
But here's the thing, even when I knew that story, so I went, okay, I'm not going to quit. Like, we can do it. And we got in here, and we leaned in. And I got to tell you, then about a year later, a year and a half later, I had, like, the hardest thing ever happen to me. And I was on a walk with my kids, and we were in this building. We were doing great. But I was on a walk with my kids, and I did what I would do a lot of nights. I would take my kids, whoever's around, what do you want for dinner? I didn't have time to make it, and, like, we're going to figure it out. And so... I would take them on a walk, and if you ask, if you have four kids and you ask, like, what do y'all want to eat, all four kids will say something different, right? So we had a ritual, and we would, it would be either Vietnamese or Mexican, and we would flip a coin to decide which one so that we wouldn't argue, right? And it would decide, and we flipped a coin, and then we started across the street, and while we were crossing that street, an SUV hit the, myself and the other two kids that were with me. And it broke my hip. And if you were around in those years, you know, I was pretty miserable. It just, breaking your hip, it just don't do it if you can avoid it. It, it was bad. It was painful. You could, everything hurt for a long time. Everything hurt. Things didn't work right. It just wasn't good. And for about a year, I felt useless. I tried to preach on video a little bit, and I showed up here a couple times. And I even tried to preach Easter, but I did it on hydrocodone, and that didn't work great. And it just was like, it was off. I was off. And it was almost nine months, and I finally, one of the big things that I get energized by what I do with you is that I get to represent our church in the places that we bring clean water and we provide amazing things and the missional places across the globe. And I hadn't been anywhere. I hadn't done anything. And I decided I'm going anyway. Like my doctor said, no, I don't care. I'm going, right? And um, so my plan was that year for our Advent offering, we were doing some pretty amazing things. We were going to be... Um, drilling some water wells in North Korea with a partner that I thought was pretty amazing. And we had a kid in the church named Brett Medlin and Brett was in Cambodia and we sent him to Living Water to get trained and we were starting a drilling ministry with Brett. And he's drilled more than like 500 wells already on our behalf through that, right? And we were launching that. So the plan was pretty beautiful, right? That's a pretty amazing thing. And I, this is the most important thing we do. I gotta go. So I decided I was going to go, and we flew from Houston to San Francisco, and then I had the team, we were flying from San Francisco on to Seoul. And I had the worst thing happen to me, where if you got a broken hip, I at least had, I had the best seat in economy I could get, I was ready to go. And then, just before the plane took off, I got a notice that United was upgrading me to business class. And I literally, I lost it. I got up there and I started texting like everybody I knew, like Jesus is real and he actually loves me. <laughs> and I put on the socks and I like had the champagne and I'm taking photos of myself and I'm sitting like, it's, I can do this. Like, it's gonna be fine. And uh, we're about to take off and I'm drinking my champagne with a big smile on my face and the flight attendant comes. She goes, Mr. C, I am so sorry, but the man who actually bought this seat, he just made it. And we gave away your seat in the back that you had. So now you're in a middle seat in the back. And I just went like, God hates me. Like, <laughs> this, isn't this is awful, right? And I sat in this middle seat for like eight, 13 hours. And I got there and everything hurt so bad. And we did two days and we were supposed to go in to come on to Cambodia. And I turned to our team and I felt like the biggest failure ever. And I just said, I physically can't do it. Like, I can't go get on that plane with you and, you know, tromp all around the rural parts in a bouncy truck in Kimbo. I just knew I can't do it. It's going to. And I felt like the biggest failure I had ever. And I, I thought I need to come back and just tell the church, like, I can't do my job anymore. Like, I can't do it. 
And I went from this place of just profound despair when I told the team, like, you're going without me. And about five minutes after I canceled my flight, I got a message on Twitter from a pastor in Korea. Um, and he said, I saw you post on Twitter that you're in Seoul. Is there any chance you would come preach at my church this Sunday? And I thought, well, it's kind of crazy because I just canceled my trip to Cambodia and I could. But what you need to know is that in my family, my dad was born in Tokyo. His dad was in World War II and then was stationed in Tokyo with his mom, who was an army nurse. And he was sent to the very first battle of the Korean War. And he was killed in the very first battle of the Korean War when my dad was about six weeks old. And that was called the Battle of Osan. It was a place called Osan. And so all I knew is if I'm going to be in Korea for five days, I want to go to Osan and to the Korean War Museum. Those are the two things I wanted to do. So I asked this pastor, where, I, I think I could preach for you, but where is your church? And he said, it's the First Baptist Church of Osan. And I thought, God might be up to something, right? And at Korean churches, this church was like, had like nine services. So I show up to preach the very first service. And the sermon was pretty easy to preach because the sermon was essentially, I'm here to raise money to drill water wells in North Korea, and I'm standing in your church that's a mile from the battlefield where the North Korean people killed my grandfather, but I'm still, because I follow Jesus, I'm here to be a blessing to them, right? Because I believe the Abrahamic promise that we're blessed to bless all people and to love our enemies. It was a pretty good sermon. And I'm like a little more than halfway through the sermon and the tallest Korean man I'd ever seen in my life stands up in the middle of my sermon and marches on the stage and starts talking, which I thought was rude. Um, but I didn't know what he was saying, and I learned later that he was the former Secretary of Defense for South Korea, and that he told the story in Korean that was later then translated to me, that he was driving to church that morning, and he heard the Holy Spirit speak to him in a way that he wasn't familiar with, but the Holy Spirit told him to go home and to get a medal that he's one of the few people in government authorized to present to people whose family members have given their lives in service to South Korea. And he places this medal on my neck and he hugs me and he shares these words that were some of those beautiful I'd ever heard to thank my family for the sacrifice of my grandfather. And then I had to preach like eight more services <laughs> after that. And I can tell you, Ecclesia, that in that moment, I knew that God was trying to make clear to me that his love for me wasn't based on my ability to perform. And my guess is that most of you have struggled with this in some way like I have. And all I know to tell you is that when we finally free ourselves from that sense that we can earn God's love or blessing and we just accept it, and we accept by the way, that it's for the people you don't like too. It's for the people that drive you nuts. It's for the people that believe different things than you believe, right? And, and when we can accept that God's love is for all people and it's not based on our performance, we're totally free. We're free to then love God just as a, as a healthy response, which is what God wanted all along. So I get it. 
I'm like you. I want to feel like I did something. And some of the time that works for me, but eventually it won't work for any of us. And the truth of the Bible from Abraham and this promise and this opportunity for God to tell a story that I never want you to sacrifice your kids to the story of Jesus coming and saying, I'm going to sacrifice myself and it's not at all based on what you do. That's really good news. And so if you've got some failure that you're holding on to or some misconception that says God doesn't love you for some reason, you've missed it too. And my hope and prayer is that like in my story, God will find ways, and maybe this sermon is part of it, to remind you that his love for you is not based on what you do, but it's based on who you are. And that ecclesia is truly good news. Would you take a moment and pray with me? It's really good news. God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I thank you for the truth of this story, a Bible that sometimes we don't understand and it's easy to miss. It's easy to just get caught up in a kid going up a mountain and we forget that the point of the story is that God doesn't want our sacrifice. God just wants to bless us because God loves us. And he blessed Abraham and his children. Not because Abraham got it right, but because God loves all people. And as we come to communion today, we pray that we could live into that truth more fully. We pray that we would come as a people that are reminded we are sons and daughters of God and there is nothing we can ever do to separate us from the love of God. Lord, may the truth of the scripture that comes in over and over again be made perfectly clear. We pray all of this together and we pray it in your name. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Ecclesia, one of the reasons we take communion every week is to remind you of the truth of this sermon. Our, our hope and prayer is that every week you come and when you hear the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you, what you hear in your head is, it's not about what I did. And it, it's so easy for us to forget. And I think some of us think that these people in the Bible were somehow better than us, but they weren't, right? Abraham, by the way, was kind of a mess. Anybody remember the, one of the first things he did when he took off into Egypt? Do you remember this? Like, he went into Egypt, and what did he, what did he do? He, he, his, his Sarah, the Bible tells us one thing about Sarah for sure. She was hot, for sure. And he basically said, your wife is hot, and people are going to want to marry her. You remember this in the Bible? Other people are going to want your wife, Right? And you need to know, like, that's how it's going to go down. And Abraham gets to Egypt, and he's like, well, I could either fight for her, or what does he do? He lies. He's like, she's my sister. And what does she do? She marries somebody else. Now, how many of you husbands feel like that would be a win for you? Like, you let your wife marry somebody else. And in the custom of the day, Abraham would have been given a dowry as the brother for his sister, Right? So he got some cattle, some, something of value. Now, I don't know what they call that in your neighborhood, but in Montrose, we call that pimping, right? If, <laughs> if somebody gives you something and they get your wife in return, right? That's not a good way to do it. Like, Abraham was not perfect. But again, hear the story. God forgives Abraham. God said, let's try again. Let's see if we can get it right. 
God wasn't thrilled with the whole situation, but he said, let's try to get it right. And ultimately, God says, I'm going to bless you no matter what. When we come to communion, please remember the places that you failed. Like Abraham, you go, need to not pimp my wife this week. Need to not do that. Not going to do that again. It's a pretty good example because most of us could go like, I, that, I hadn't done that. Like that's, that, that feels like a big fail. But we have done things. And so we come to communion and then Paul's gonna lead us now in a confessional prayer so that we can say, God, these are the things I have done. I've been a little too self-focused this week. Will you forgive me? And then we come and we're reminded, not my performance, it's God's love. So let's confess our sins together. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.